Listen as I read God's word from 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'm preaching from verses 10 and 11, but I'll begin at the beginning of the chapter. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. My grandson Jack is learning the children's catechism. It may be that some of you remember the answers to these two questions as well. Does God know all things? The answer is yes. Nothing can be hid from God. And the next question is, can God do all things? And the answer, yes, God can do all his holy will. Those are beautiful, simple answers, aren't they? but they speak of profound truths and truths that are actually challenged by a certain theology today, a theology called open theism. It's a theology that looks at verse 11 today that records God's regret and it teaches that God doesn't know the future that God doesn't know all things. And because of that, his purposes are contingent upon what happens and the decisions of mankind. That's the way some theologians treat a passage like this. And today I want to address that because it is a serious error. It's one that threatens the very nature of God, our understanding of scripture, 
and the foundation of our salvation as well. In fact, I've stated it in perhaps a provocative way that open theism makes great promises, but in the end, it closes the door to heaven. I'm stating it in that provocative way, though, so perhaps you would remember it, that open theism closes heaven because it is a serious error and a serious divergence from biblical theology and understanding, a theology that is well expressed in the simple answers to that children catechism. God knows all things. God can do all things. So I want to start today by defining open theism and showing you where it's connected to this passage. I'll go on then to answer their uh, their teaching and warning you of the consequences of a, of a theology that teaches that God does not know the future. So by definition, let me describe open theism this way. It teaches that God does not know future events until they happen, since events do not exist until created by human choices. It's a teaching that in, a, in all generosity is trying to make sense of something that is a mystery in our understanding of biblical teaching. And the mystery is the relationship between the sovereignty of God on one hand and human responsibility on the other. To our finite minds, those two things don't go together. In fact, they would say, some have said that if God is sovereign, then man is just a robot. It doesn't matter what we do. Well, to solve the problem of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of mankind, which we believe the Bible teaches both of them, to solve the mystery, open theism elevates the sovereignty of mankind the freedom of man's will over the sovereignty of God. That necessarily places limits on God's power, on his knowledge, and on his sovereignty. When I say that, maybe it, uh, it makes you cringe. The early service, uh, little Max was back, back, back in the back row going, well, that's not true. <laughs> I was glad that he, that he recognized that that's preposterous to limit God's power, his knowledge, and his sovereignty is not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. But open theism embraces this idea of the absolute freedom of human will. Where does it come from? Well, open theists would turn to a passage like 1 Samuel 15, 11. God regretted, greatly regretted, setting up Samuel as king. Now, we've seen that Samuel was not a good king. And we know that God did set Samuel up as king. Then as we go on in Samuel's rule, we see rash decisions, we see 
ill-advised commands. We see, we see sinful rejection of the Almighty God and of his covenant in Saul. And so God, who set up Saul, regrets having set him up. And the open uh, theism theologians would grasp on this truth, and they say that this proves that God didn't know all things, that he didn't know that this was what Saul was going to do. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had an eager regret. If he would have known that this was what Saul would have done, then uh, he wouldn't have done that. He wouldn't have had regret. Or if he had known, then he would have kind of taken his lumps, so to speak, because he knew it and went ahead with that decision anyway. The point is that open theists embrace this idea of the fact that you and I and, and Saul here make all of their own decisions. And God is contingent upon those decisions. There's also a sense where God's regret suggests that he changes his mind. And uh, open theists are, are embrace that as well, that God changes. Not only changes his mind, but his plans and his purposes. And they even say that God is open to our opinion and our decisions. And he engages us in, in the decisions that he makes. They would turn to this and, and uh, passages like God's conversation with Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah. They would say that God wants to know man's opinion or man's decisions. It seems like Abraham bargains with God to save Sodom and Gomorrah. And speaking about this idea, one author that is from the camp of open theism says this. They explain it this way. For Abraham and for God, the decision was yet open. And God invited Abraham into the decision-making process. Because God desires a genuine relationship, he is open to his creatures, especially through prayer. Through these prayers, we see God sovereignly chooses not to govern the world without our input. Isn't that big of God? I say that kind of facetiously because I, I hope that's another instance where you're, you're like, Oh, that's not true. But there's something appealing about it, isn't there? And the open theists would get no traction unless there was something appealing. And here's what's appealing. Remember, remember there is a mystery. The Bible says that God is sovereign, but then he says that, that he holds us responsible for our decisions. And when I say that, I'm defending that there is a certain freedom of man's will. But it is a freedom that is governed by our nature. We cannot choose God when we're fallen because that's beyond our ability. It's beyond our nature. But nothing is twisting our arm to make decisions no one is coercing us to sin. We freely choose to do that. And there's where 
a certain appeal comes from open theism because we don't feel like we're being coerced. We don't feel like our decisions are known beforehand because when we say that, we can come to the conclusion that if they're known beforehand, then, then they're fixed and we're robots and we know we're not robots. We don't want to be fatalistic in our approach. So the open theist tries to solve that apparent problem by siding with our experience. We're not coerced. We freely choose. So if to maintain that freedom, God has to not know what's going to happen because if it's known, it's predetermined. And that makes our choice sovereign. (laughs) Makes our choice supreme, our freedom of will absolute. But the open theists make a mistake about the freedom of man's will and about the sovereignty of God. As we go on to give something of a critique of that, I want to, I do want to acknowledge that appeal of open theism. I want to acknowledge that it seems like they promise great things. Who doesn't want to have a genuine relationship with God? Who doesn't want to, uh, to, to pray and to have the sense of dialogue with God about the decisions that we make and, and about the course of our life? We all want that. Open theism seems to promise great things. And the greatness that they promise is, is a, a, to suggest that, that this great God that we worship shows restraint, that he limits his power, that he shows respect to you and your free will, that he has the wisdom and the power to act in that moment that you choose to then chart his course so as to accomplish his purposes. Well, if you're scratching your head at this point uh, and trying to figure out what that means, I, I like the way that Lincoln Duncan gives a summary of this view of God. God's greatness is not found in his divine control of the future or have, of his exhaustive foreknowledge of the future, but rather in his flexible, adroit, wise, Quick response to things as they unfold. In other words, God is really quick on his feet. I don't know about you, but uh, that type of God is not very appealing. As I said, it, uh, it, it seems to promise good things and there's an emotional appeal, but when you follow the track to where it leads to the devastating consequences that I'm going to get to, I hope you shudder at thinking of this type of God. 
He's not even as powerful as, say, Doctor Strange of the Marvel Universe, who, who knows all of the different futures that could possibly happen, and then nudges the course of, course of history along. God doesn't even know that. He doesn't know the future. He doesn't know all things. So I've started down the path of warning you against openness theology. Let me give you two principles of interpretation that will help you understand the, the, uh, the error of open theism. The, there are two basic principles of interpretation uh, that I'll give you here. And uh, starting with, you use a clear passage of scripture to help you to understand a more difficult passage of scripture. A place where something is stated clearly will, will help you to understand a place where you're left just wondering how this matches with other passages of scripture. So uh, all of these principles are, are coming from the concept that scripture interprets scripture. So in this case, you use a clear passage to interpret a, a less clear or a more difficult passage. The open theists would say that uh, in this case, in the case of Saul, that their principle of interpretation is that sovereign will interprets it. That means that God really did regret, that God didn't know what Saul was going to turn out to be, and so was sorry for his setting up Saul. But that leaves you in conflict with this huge body of scripture, this huge body of evidence that clearly says that God is sovereign, that God does indeed know all things and does all of his holy will. So the open theists are left with that principle of interpretation of the sovereignty of human will, and they interpret everything else in that light. And they have to go through a wide variety of gymnastics in order to explain away those other clearer and really weightier passages of Scripture that help us to understand what is happening here, which I'll come to in just a moment. The second principle is that you use a teaching passage, a doctrinal passage, to interpret a historical passage. What I mean by that is that in 1 Samuel, there is history that's being, being related. And in the telling of history, there's often the, uh, the story that is going on. And the, uh, the emphasis is on relating that story, on relating that history. A teaching passage is is a, is a clear shot. This is, this is what you ought to believe about God. And that clear teaching passage then will help you to understand a, the story narrative or the, the telling of history. So let me give you a couple of examples of this. It will help you to understand this passage. A couple of, of clear teaching passages about the sovereignty of God. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 46, verses 10 and 11. This is God speaking. 
Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country, Indeed, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. That's uh, uh, hard to explain away. A very clear passage about the knowledge of God and how he accomplishes every purpose that he has. Or think of the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1, that I read as our call to worship. In Christ also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's foreknowledge, there's foreordination, there's purpose, there's accomplishment in a teaching passage. Or think of the passage from Acts that I read, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost to explain the death of Jesus Christ. He holds mankind accountable. This happened because of wicked hands. But it was also by the previous knowledge of God and his eternal purpose. It was God's will that Jesus Christ die on the cross. Those are just three uh, Three examples of a weight of evidence that speaks to the sovereignty of God. Derek Thomas says that what emerges is that the Bible is resolutely committed to a view of God's omniscience, that he knows everything there is to know, and that he knows it because he creates it, sustains it, and governs everything. God's plan is perfect and undeniable. So then how do we understand God's regret? Let's take all of those principles and bring it back now to 1 Samuel 15. It says that God regretted setting up Samuel. And we need to accept that. That's what it says. So how do we understand that? Bringing to bear those clear ideas of the sovereignty of God and human responsibility that go together. Well, one explanation is that, that God, uh, through the Bible, often uses words that are understandable in our context. He is God, is he not? And we are creatures, we're separated because of that divide of divine from creature. And so God condescends to talk to us, to reveal himself in ways that we can understand. John Calvin uses the phrase baby talk. Yeah, parents sometimes will talk to their children in baby talk so they'll understand. And that's the way Calvin describes it. He uses words that we could understand. He doesn't use the word, for instance, anthropomorphism. <laughs> Who understands that word? 
Oh, maybe the, uh, the, the literature majors here understand that. Well, the theologians should understand it. You should understand it too. It means that, uh, that there's a literary device where, where the things of man are ascribed to inanimate objects or to other things so that we can understand them. And for God, who has no body, the Bible sometimes speaks of his strong arm. Now, does God have a body? No. Does he have an arm? No. But you can understand when it says God has a strong right arm and he raises it up against his enemy. That communicates to us. You can understand the power of God that he exercises for us. Or when Jesus says that, that nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hands. And again, God doesn't have hands, but that communicates, doesn't it? That the Lord holds on to us. And so there is something of an understandable human emotion that is being ascribed to God here. That God appointed Saul to serve as a king in righteousness, but Saul was a disappointment. There's a human emotion that rises up because of that. There's regret, not because God didn't know, but because of the sin that is worked out in history in Saul's life. God does regret, and the clear passages tell us that God does not change. In fact, Samuel himself says that God does not change. In this very context, you can go down to verses 28 and 29, where Samuel tells of the judgment of God that has come upon Samuel, a judgment that will not change because God does not change. Here he calls God the strength of Israel. The strength of Israel will not lie nor relent. That's the very same word as regret. Here's a teaching passage. Samuel says, God does not change, for he is not a man that he should relent. So what about verse 11? Well, God's regret is tied up not into his not knowing what Saul would do, but was tied up with the grievous nature of sin itself. God knew what Saul would do. And yet it grieved God when it happened. Saul's sin, his pride, his self-reliance, his disobedience, his lack of faith grieved God, as does all sin. I'm reminded of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem at this point. Weeping over God's covenant people who had known the faithfulness of God throughout their lives, who had known the power of God that was demonstrated over and over again, whom the Messiah himself had come to, and they rejected him. And Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. There is a real grief over the sin of mankind, over the consequences of that sin. But it's not because God did not know. If God does not know all things, 
there are some devastating consequences that flow out of that teaching. Openness theology, open, uh, uh, open theism, by its embracing of this idea that God doesn't know the future, it denies the very validity of the Bible itself. Now, they would say, sure, God can reveal himself, but you would have to go through the scriptures and cut out every place where God foretells the future. If God doesn't know it, how is prophecy even a thing? It's impossible for God to know the future, so prophecy has no place. It guts the Bible of any wisdom or authority or declaration, even of a plan of salvation. Speaking of plans, how is it that God can plan or have any purposes? Go back and read Ephesians chapter 1, and it speaks of how God from all eternity past has known the fact of all of history, knew that there would be sin, knew that he would send Jesus Christ to be the Redeemer. That's from all eternity past that the Lord has planned and purposed and then worked out in history that almighty plan. Instead, open theism wants to maintain that God is quick on his feet, that God is, uh, is, is changeable and is relatable, and that he can, uh, he can go with the flow, so to speak. But you have to ask, to what purpose? If his desires are contingent upon your decisions, then just who is God? If God does not know all things, if God cannot accomplish his purpose, then why do you pray? There's no reason for prayer. It leaves you without any hope that the Lord would ever know or, uh, if he does know, be able to do anything about what you're praying for. And most devastating, open theism leaves you in your sin. If your choice is absolute, then you could choose God you could unchoose God. You could choose again and unchoose again and actually you can't choose if you're serious at all about the Bible then you know that there is no one who is righteous. We're dead in our sins. There is no one who seeks after God. So if God's purpose waits on you to choose, you're left in your sin. It closes the door of heaven. 
praise be to God. Praise be to an almighty God who knows all things and can do all of his holy will. Because it is his will to save sinners. He was not surprised by Adam's sin. He was not surprised by Saul's. He's not surprised by yours or mine. He knows the depths of that depravity. He knows the effects of sin and the inability that we have to save ourselves from that. And out of love from all eternity, he determined to save sinners. And so sent Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came into the world knowing that he's, his steps were leading him to the cross. And he set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing that he would suffer and die at the hands of wicked men. But according to that covenant from before the world was made, because his death was what accomplishes your redemption. And so the Lord does act and draw us out of our fallen nature so that we can genuinely choose God, not because we were able in and of ourselves, but by the power of the Holy Spirit regenerating a dead heart. It is the action of God that enables us to embrace Jesus Christ as he is offered, to repent of our sins, and to trust in him. So praise be to God that he does know all things and that he can accomplish all of his holy will. And I pray that as you encounter false teachings like open theism, that you would keep the simple truth of the children's catechism in mind. Does God know all things? Yes. Nothing can be hid from God. Can God do all things? Yes. God can do all his holy will. And praise God that he can. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we hold these truths closely to our hearts. That you do know us and know all things and that you can do all things. And God, we, we pray that you would guard us from false teachings that seem bright and shiny and appealing, and yet they are empty on the inside. Lord, we, we pray that our understanding of your promises would be shaped by, by your word and by those things that are clear and, uh, and the weight of that teaching. And help us, O oh God, to understand these places that are, are a little harder to understand and but to understand them in the light of that principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. We do thank you, O God, once more that you do know us and you have saved us by your mighty right arm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's close by singing Psalm 33, Selection C. In it, I want you to note the sovereignty of God, the knowledge of God that is declared over and over again. He created, he called into being, he accomplishes every purpose that he has had in his mind. Let's praise God for this Psalm 33c. Please stand.